It's the 31st of July, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, a bunch of stuff about gout. COVID results are getting a bit consistent and a top 10 list in rheumatology training programs and hospitals. Hmm. Tune in for more. We'll start out with a issue that I don't know is an issue, but since there's a publication about it, maybe now it's an issue. What am I talking about? I'm talking about loading doses when using biologics in RA therapy. You know, we see them in a lot of drug development trials, and then the drugs get developed and FDA approved, and it becomes a part of the package insert. Um, and yet, do we often exclude these when we start using the drugs? Sort of started back in the day with uh, infliximab, where we did a 0, 2, 6, and then Q8 sort of regimen. But we've seen this in other drugs over the years with loading doses, oral or IV. Uh, and again, I don't know that we really adhere to them. Well, one uh, group of authors looked at this and they only found a small number of studies that really examined um, whether or not you gave a loading dose or not, and did it have an effect on the outcome. So the end here is small. It's five clinical trials looking at drugs like abatacept, sertolizumab, and secukinumab. And overall, when compared to not using a loading dose, there really wasn't much difference. So you've been right all along. Forget the loading dose. Let's get on with therapy. Now, loading dose may have certain utility in certain patients, and it certainly is approved for such use. So consider that as you go forward. Rituximab has been studied. Actually, uh, something I've also posted this week had to do with uh, a new biosimilar of rituximab versus the reference rituxan, showing basically the exact same results. So maybe we'll see that in the future, FDA approval of yet another rituxan uh, for rheumatoid arthritis. But I am now talking about a different rituxan study where they compared outcomes in older people over the age of 65 versus younger RA patients under the age of 65. Uh, and basically they showed really no difference when it came to drug survival or clinical efficacy outcomes as measured by the Simplified Disease Activity Index, the SDI. However, when it came to older people, there were more SIEs, 14 versus 6 per 100 patient years, and more pneumonias, 10 versus 5 per 100 patient years, um, when you compared it to people under the age of 65. So we do know that age is a risk factor for serious infectious events. I don't know that there's anything unique here that we can attribute to rituximab. Uh, but we, have, we could attribute it to the age of the individuals under study. So that's going to be a risk factor going forward should you use this efficacious drug in people whom, in whom it would benefit. You know, the interesting thing about the elderly with RA is studies consistently show we as rheumatologists tend to underdose and underutilize aggressive therapies in patients who are over the age of 65. And that probably isn't well-founded based on any real evidence. I don't know that even this evidence of uh, somewhat higher SIE and pneumonia rates would change me from using this kind of therapy in older patients. So exercise. We always talk about exercise more, you know, eat less, uh, treat earlier. Again, these are part of our dictums. 
an interesting meta-analysis of 10 studies in over 500 ankylosing spondylitis patients shows that when you look at all the outcome measures for AS, exercise versus a non-exercise comparator, exercise wins as far as less pain, improved function, less disease activity, but interestingly, um, it did not affect CRP and SED rates. So yes, there was an improvement in pain scores, BASDI and BASV, but not the acute phase reactants, meaning that these other measures are basically looking at pain and function uh, as being the main things that are improved by uh, prescribing exercise in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. We reported in the past about um, cannabinoid-directed therapy in the form of lenabasum. Lenabasum is actually made by a company called Corbis, and they've actually studied this um, cannabinoid, uh, which binds to CB2 receptors and is supposed to give you, uh, what, less inflammation, less fibrosis. Uh, it's been studied in, in scleroderma, in dermatomyositis, and lupus. Uh, it's also uh, in clinical phase two trials in cystic fibrosis. The drug is not approved for anything yet, but this is the areas they're going after. Anyway, this particular report looked at a study in a small cohort of systemic sclerosis patients, 27 patients versus 15 patients treated placebo. And at week 16, the patients treated with um, lenabasum had less skin activity as measured by a new skin score called CRISS, C-R-I-S-S. Uh, and at the same time showed uh, reduced gene expression for inflammatory markers and markers of fibrosis. Uh, and overall, when they look at skin histology, the lenabasum-treated patients did better. So again, these are all early trials. A lot of these are phase two. Uh, we need to see large phase three results, but it's encouraging, especially in difficult-to-treat disorders like uh, scleroderma and dermatomyositis. Uh, RA patients with comorbidities, you know, they we do know they tend to have more disease activity. We do know that they tend not to do as well in treatment. But when you specifically look at the comorbidities that are psychiatric in origin, depression, anxiety, bipolar disease, schizophrenia, you know, a large analysis of 12,000, almost 13,000 RA patients showed um, that when you look at the influence of psychiatric comorbidities, it's not good. They tend to have uh, basically uh, more clinic visits. They tend to have more hospitalizations, more hospital days, and they take more drugs. These patients are difficult to treat. Um, in fact, my lecture is on, and I wrote an article on Room Now on the difficult RA patient speaks to just this. It is, you know, certain comorbidities, especially psychiatric comorbidities, that make such patients much more difficult. They're going to take more of your time. They're going to take more effort on your part to engage other consultants to optimize the treatment of that psychiatric comorbidity and to ascribe the responsibility of that to the primary care doctor is a gigantic mistake in my opinion. So again, this is a tough bunch and this, this data bears that out. Good news for the JAK front, another JAK inhibitor um, is poised for approval. In this case, in the European Union, where the EMA and its CHMP division uh, has recommended for approval filgotinib for patients with moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis not responding uh, or having an inadequate response to DMARDs. Uh, there looks like they're going to be um, put up for 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams once a day. Uh, it's a once a day JAK1 inhibitor. 
Uh, it has a new trade name. It's not forgotten of as its generic name. Let's see, Decelica is the name. J-Y-S-E-L-E-C-A. Decelica, it sounds like a new car coming forward. Sports sedan from Nissan. Oh no, it's not. It's a jack inhibitor coming from um, the folks at Gilead. Uh, so this is also slated for uh, an, a regulatory consideration uh, by the FDA sometime this year as well. So maybe we'll be seeing yet a fourth jack inhibitor hit the market this year. I found an interesting report on, uh, in, I think it's in, in a pediatric journal, the um, JAMA Pediatrics, on Down syndrome associated arthritis, which you know, when I was working at the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital here in Dallas with Chester Fink, Lynn Pinero, some great pediatric rheumatologists, I would see these Down syndrome kids, uh, and there were a number of them in their clinic, and they had inflammatory arthritis, and they were often called seronegatives and whatnot. Well, this review was a review of many centers and um, uh, 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 pediatric rheumatologists that basically says this is a real syndrome. It is a seronegative polyarticular erosive inflammatory arthritis um, that unfortunately has a very long delay in diagnosis uh, in their experience a 19 month delay um, and yet these patients are basically treated as seronegative RAs um, and the bad news here is that many of the treatments that we would normally use to treat um, JIA uh, and methotrexate biologics etc are poorly tolerated and generally in general less effective in Down syndrome associated arthritis. So this is sort of sobering uh, data. We need more cohorts, more studies in this unique um, uh, population that can get a really severe inflammatory arthritis. A retrospective study actually examined anakinra in patients with COVID uh, and showed very favorable, favorable responses. So in this retrospective study, there were 22 um, uh, patients who were treated with, um, let's see, it was 10 who were treated with standard of care and 12 who were treated with standard of care plus IV anakinra, receiving 300 milligrams of anakinra on day one um, and, uh, and actually day one uh, through day five and then tapered over the next three days. And the bottom line is in this study, all of the anakinra patients had rapid improvement, no deaths, less oxygen demands and no need for mechanical ventilation. And this was significantly better than the standard care patients where there were deaths and were needs for mechanical ventilation, suggesting this is like the second or third study now, all open label, not head-to-head -head trials, saying that IL-1 inhibition really works well in patients with severe COVID. Another interesting um, and consistent report comes uh, um, uh, with the recent report of colchicine. This comes from JAMA just uh, this week where colchicine used in COVID patients gave really positive results. So this is a single center study of 140 patients uh, in uh, Northern Italy who were treated with a standard of care. And the standard of care there was a combination of things, including hydroxychloroquine uh, and or dexamethasone and or antiviral therapy. And then they had another cohort of 122 patients who were um, treated with the same plus the addition of colchicine, one milligram per day. Uh, and in the end, the colchicine treated patients basically had better survival, 84% versus 64% in the standard of care uh, group only. So this is uh, similar to the results of the Greco study that we reported a few weeks ago, 
uh, suggesting that maybe early use um, of colchicine would be a powerful and simple addition to therapy. Uh, so we have a bunch of reports about gout this week that are kind of interesting. What I didn't report on this week, but maybe next week, is there a number of, of, of write-ins um, by numerous authors complaining of or offering a different perspective to the most recent ACR guidelines on the management of gout. Maybe we'll review that another time. But there was a report from one of the nephrology journals basically talking about a rising amount of evidence suggesting a potential link between hyperuricemia and hypertension. Um, it's not a done deal. There is unfortunately not enough um, strong evidence and uh, really well-controlled evidence. But, you know, this stems from the study in a pediatric population of kids with hypertension um, and who had hyperuricemia and who were given uh, um, uh, a urate-lowering therapy and their blood pressure improved. Um, and I know uh, hypertension is part of the metabolic syndrome, and, and gout should be part of that metabolic syndrome as well. So I'm a strong advocate for aggressively treating hyperuricemia, especially in gout patients, obviously, but even in patients maybe who have uh, asymptomatic hyperuricemia, it can't be a good thing, especially with levels above 9 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, so there's this nice review that we have a link for you in the, the website. The idea is that, you know, uric acid leads to activation of the renin-angiotensin system, and the authors make the claim that maybe um, therapeutic intervention in, with the renin-angiotensin system would be akin to initiating uh, urate-lowering therapy in patients who don't have gout. Um, a nice case report series came across that mirrors what we talked about previously about the use of methotrexate in patients receiving peglodicase. As you know, peglodicase has, um, it's a very effective drug, but uh, unfortunately only about 42% of patients have a great response to the drug based on two clinical trials that, that have been out there. Uh, and it's limited by the development of anti-peglodicase antibodies, which can ultimately lead to um, uh, not only toxicity, but a limited uh, therapeutic benefit. So one way of dealing with that propensity to develop anti-PEG antibodies is to use immunosuppressive therapies. You wouldn't want to use loflunamide because loflunamide lowers uric acid levels. It is a, a basically a uricosuric kind of agent, and that would obscure your one biomarker that you watch when you're looking at patients on peglodicase, which is serum uric acid levels. Instead, people have used three drugs that I know about. One is azathioprine. Mike Pillinger wrote about that. That's been my experience to work with. Azathioprine works really well. Second drug in clinical trials, Ken Sag's group is running a large peglodicase Michael Fenelay trial looking at its ability to inhibit anti-drug antibodies. And then this particular study is similar to that seen in uh, Seattle where 10 patients were given methotrexate when they were also given uh, peglodicase. So in this study, these are patients with really severe refractory gout, erosive disease, TOFI, recurrent flares, you know, it failed either uh, febuxostat or allopurinol, and they were all initiated with um, a peglodicase. Nine out of the 10 received IV prior to starting the peglodicase, one received oral after starting it. The bottom line is that 80% of the patients responded, overall 15 infusions, uh, given over about 32 different 32 weeks with significant lowering of, of serum uric acid levels 
and, and again, about an 80% response rate. That is double the historic published um, clinical trial data. Really can't compare the clinical trial data to this real world data, but it is still, this is encouraging. And we would need to look at the, the study that Ken Stag is doing with microphenolate. We should see more trials of these kind of agents and use, and we should be using a more picolota case. It works really, really well. Um, and then lastly, there's an interesting um, editorial in Arthritis and Rheumatology by Danby and Yochi looking at um, the burden of gout in our society. And so commentary on an article in the same edition by Safri where they report the results of the Global Burden of Disease Study from 2017 that showed that between 1990 and 2017, there's a doubling of the worldwide burden of gout going from 20 million to 41 million in, in 2017. Uh, as part of the, this overview, they talk about the many things that have accompanied this rise in gout, including the fact that, um, even, that very few people are started on urate-lowering therapy despite the onset and diagnosis of gout less than 27%, yet the majority of patients continue to have flares um, in the ensuing months. The, the, it's compounded by a lot of comorbidities, including hypertension, uh, chronic kidney disease in 70%, obesity in half the patients, cardiovascular disease in 10 to 14%, hypertension in 75%, going back to what we just talked about uh, and its relationship to hyperuricemia. Um, and, you know, it looks like the rise in obesity in society has led to this also rise in the rates of gout that we've seen over time. And then lastly, gout is associated with 1.3 million years of living with disability in 2017. Yet there's little gout education, yet there's disagreement on guidelines for managing gout. Gout remains a gigantic public health problem that we as rheumatologists need to take the lead on. Lastly, I'll end up with a top 10, actually, no, it's a top 13 list of the best rheumatology hospitals, uh, according to US News and World Report. Of course, they would know, this is what, it's like all marketing, but number one on the list for like the, at least third year in a row that I know of is Johns Hopkins, number two, Cleveland Clinic, three, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, four, New York City's Hospital for Special Surgery, five, the Brigham and Women's Hospital, six, Mass General, I wonder if that's a fight in Boston. Uh, seven, UCSF. Eight, NYU Langone Medical School, Medical uh, University. Uh, nine, UCLA Medical Center. Ten, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Eleven, University of Colorado and its hospitals. Twelve, University of Pittsburgh making the list. And thirteen, Duke University Medical Center. This is where you want to go if you've got a rheumatologic problem. Or at least they can boast about it. Um, yes, we're still working on uh, calls and um, questions from you, the viewers. We don't yet have that on the website. Look for that in the weeks to come. Uh, that's it for this edition of the Room Now podcast. Go to the website, check out these links. Be sure to tune in. Be sure to tell your friends. Be sure to give us a good ranking. That couldn't hurt either. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>